Chapter 20 A noisy crowd of questions came at me faster than I could articulate them, until I finally asked, Where are we? Jamie crouched lower. He begged me to keep my voice down. He wouldn't come out from behind the brambles. Holding on to a large, twisted branch, wielding it like a weapon, he told me to take cover. We're being watched, he said. I dropped to my knees so the brambles around us would provide some cover. I need to know where we are, I said. I need to find help. He nodded. Just keep your voice down. I met his eyes through the leaves, staring at me without blinking. They were emerald green, a geometry of white flecks in them. Don't worry, he said. Once we get to my camp, there will be help. I could hardly conceal my desperation, squatting near the boy in my underpants, shivering by then, with a rising fever to accompany the pangs and sores all over my body. It was because of this that I reverted to my native tongue, a sudden bitter flow of invective and frustration. Jamie was pure amazement. Was that German, he asked? I slumped back to the grass. Feeling sweat tumble around my face, I drew my hand across my forehead. Jamie appeared unaffected by the heat, although he had a pair of jeans on and some kind of light top with a hood. My grandfather was German, he whispered. During a short pause, more questions heaped up in my head. With very little energy left, I crossed my legs, holding my arm in my lap, trying to cradle it. Jamie slipped from subject to subject, too fast for me to catch up. Where I was sitting, I couldn't see him anymore. I could only hear him. He talked about his new school. He said he didn't like being stuck out in the middle of nowhere. Although I didn't believe we could be in Britain, I had come to realize that he must be English. Hanging my head, short of breath, but desperate to know more, I asked, Where do you go to school? How do I know I can trust you, Jamie said. I didn't answer, so he went on in that vein. How do I know you're not some kind of spy, pretending to be friendly, but really you want to find out where my camp is so you can tell your side and they'll surprise attack us? I shook my head. It seemed too absurd what I was having to go through just to get some assistance. Jamie, I said, listen to me. I'll tell you the truth. I'm totally lost here. I don't even know my name. He created a party in the bushes to look at me more closely. His nose was scrunched up. He was looking at me as if I'd said something incomprehensible. I've forgotten everything about myself, I went on. I have no idea where I am or how I got here. He seemed impressed now. How did you manage that? I looked up, surprised at how enthralled he'd become. That's brilliant, he said. You mean you can be whoever you want? I have to confess, weary and sad and sick as I was, his remark made me smile. That is so cool, he said. And when you get bored, you can just turn into someone else. I wish I could have that happen to me. I'm always going to be stuck being Jamie in this stupid life. I do remember some things, I interrupted, but he was too preoccupied with his own theme to proceed in any useful way with the conversation. He was incensed at the way his life was going and kept saying he wanted to start all over again. His emotions flowed through his face and gestures like a healthy stream, perplexed one moment, then amazed, and sometimes sad and secretive. Eventually he asked what he should call me. All the more haggard and drawn, I looked for his eyes in the brambles and said, I really have no idea. 
You're not pulling my leg, are you? he asked. By then, my weakness and exhaustion had scrambled my thoughts so much, I would have been incoherent no matter what I said. Jamie didn't wait for an answer. He stood frowning, scanning the hillsides with a practiced squint. I think it's safe enough to have a swim, he said. He tossed his pretend gun to the ground, stripped to his waist, then kicked off his jeans and trainers. Running by me in his underwear, he flopped belly first into shallow water, straight into a wild paddle that got him nowhere but tired and exhilarated. I managed to follow on my hands and knees through spells of giddiness and a moment of near passing out. When I got to the shoreline, I slinked in after him, doing a breaststroke, revived once again by the cold. As I dunked my head to slurp some water, I could feel it trickle pleasantly through what was becoming a beard on my face. For a moment, it was gorgeous to float in the chilled water again. You should try swimming, Jamie, I said, and told him to watch as I demonstrated the mechanics of a front crawl. The first time he attempted it, he sank and came up spluttering. It took him a few minutes to get used to the difficult movements. I helped, supporting his tummy with the flat of my hand, until he could roughly coordinate kicking and scooping forwards with his arms and lifting his head to breathe. When I'd had enough, I sank back in the shadows, too fatigued to focus on much else. I urged him to try a few times without me. I was about to lie back and give myself up to the sparkling sunshine. To my astonishment, Jamie flipped forward like a dolphin, springing into the perfectly balanced crawl he'd known how to do all along. With easy, rhythmic strokes, he drew away, making rapid progress. He kept it up for fifteen meters before turning and breezing back. Why didn't you tell me you could swim? He smiled as he came closer. I don't know. He stood to his full height. Water poured down his small body and he had a shining smile. I felt foolish having tried to teach him something he was already good at. There was no time to think or respond. Jamie was stomping out of the water, making flat-footed splashes until he got to a sandy part of the bank. He turned and asked if I could do handstands. He did one before I could reply tipping his weight onto fully outstretched arms, toes pointing to the sky, holding it all together with a gentle arch in his back. When he was secure, he said, I love being upside down, don't you? It made me feel better to think the world upside down could look so much better than right side up. I shrugged at him. Then I laughed. I couldn't help myself. Genuinely curious about the effect he was having on me, he fell out of his handstand wanting to know what was so funny. I shook my head. I don't know, I said. The whole thing. Is it what I said about being upside down? My laugh turned into a stupid giggle, too high-headed and childish for me to be comfortable with. I would like to have put a stop to it. I tried shutting my mouth. I tried swallowing, but each unwanted giggle sound strained to be audible through my nose and was too painful to force back. Before long, I was unable to resist successive detonations in my chest. They came jumping out, big blowout sounds, strange to my own ears. It was like the sound of falling apart. More alarmingly, I knew I could have been crying too. If only to avoid this, I allowed myself to tumble in a wave of silliness, hooting and splashing the water all around me. Jamie squatted in the grass with a frown darkening his brow. He might have been a Native American observing the newly washed-up white man on his shores. Is it something I said? he asked. 
the way I do handstands. I had to howl all the more, shaking my head, trying to tell him to reassure him somehow that I wasn't going insane, but I was. I managed to stutter the words, Look at this, I could turn the world upside down too. I was sitting in a lake somewhere in the mountains on a hot sunny day with a young English boy, and it didn't make sense. My laughter subsided, but not my nearness to tears. I gazed at my reflection in the water, still distorted with ripples, but becoming more still. There was no sudden sense of recognition, no feature of my face that I could say was familiar. I cleared my throat and made low-pitched noises to find the right tone for an apology. I'm sorry, I said. I've had a rough two days. I think I need medical attention. I couldn't look Jamie in the eye anymore. I hauled myself up and limped towards the rocks where my clothes were. I knew he was watching, but I did my best to ignore him. I rubbed the wet off my body and was prepared to let the afternoon heat finish the job. Jamie ran back to the brambles where he got dressed. Ideally, I would have stripped my underwear off and draped them out to dry, but I didn't wish to expose myself. I leaned my back against a rock as if perfectly content to sit there for the rest of the afternoon in my wet underpants. I'd come to realize something about my situation. The more I tried to force out any remote hidden memory, the more it seemed to recede from me, as if the memory knew that it mustn't be caught. Recalling anything was like trying to establish trust with some very timid creature. It took patience and a strange kind of skill. Jamie came back with his own hunt in mind. He had his branch at the ready. He was on the edge of my field of vision, approaching in what seemed to be a condition of high readiness for any contingency. He was ready to shoot at anything that moved. Together we looked at the lake we'd been swimming in, placid and grand, surrounded by a vibrant forest sloping gradually up the mountainsides. We both saw a glint in the trees and branches rustling along the opposite shore. Jamie fell to his knees. He dived for cover, hissing at me to do the same. We've got to get out of here right now, he whispered. I turned to look at him. Didn't you see that? His tone was anguished. He really did look the part as he pointed and said, Look, over there. I glanced back to scrutinize the surroundings. I have to admit I was quietly amazed at the amount of realism and energy this boy could put into whatever fancy took hold of him. Just then, Jamie appeared genuinely terrified. Chapter 21 One good development from Anya's point of view, when living in the sticks could otherwise be so miserable, was the new friend she'd made in school. Valerie Malone came to sleep over once, and Anya had gone to a party at her house in a nearby town. Valerie was graceful and blonde, with freckles and almond eyes that always looked freshly rinsed. That didn't make any difference as far as Teresa was concerned. Anya's new friend could have been a spotty gargoyle, and Teresa would have been delighted about it. As it was, she was over the moon and thoroughly encouraged the friendship, and may even have gone overboard, asking after that nice Valerie a little too often, curious about her parents, wanting to know if the name alone was significant as it didn't sound English, more Irish, Teresa would have thought. 
It was a Tibetan prayer wheel of queries and remarks from her mother that Anya soon refused to answer with anything more than a grunt. Most people were attracted to Val Mal. It was partly her good looks, her chirpy character, but also her readiness to put on a happy face and be polite in company. As well as these obvious attributes, Val seemed to have the most carefree response to any kind of command or imposition. Where others often snagged on the requirements of their parents, Val seemed untroubled with it. She seemed a kind of princess. But there was a different side to her not many knew about. At the very beginning of their friendship, she confessed to Anya that she enjoyed faking the sweet girl she seemed to be. It was an insight Anya couldn't resist and took to laughing privately at whenever she saw it happen. The other thing Anya liked about Val was her family. Val's family seemed sprawling and vigorous. Getting to know them was like coming across Jack's magic beanstalk sprouting overnight. There were two older sisters and a good-looking older brother called Lenny Anya liked to fantasize about and parents with a sense of humor who were both switched on in an old hippie sort of way. They rode horses on the weekends and enjoyed parties and all kinds of far-flung music. It was enough to make Anya dizzy, not to say jealous. She avoided talking about her own family, or what had happened to her father, or why they'd moved to Devon in the first place. Instead, she climbed the beanstalk of Val's family and discovered she would have loved to have been the youngest, like Val was, and get her hair ruffled, like Val did, and be protected and gently teased, just like Val. Rather than having Jamie stalking her, she began to pine for an older brother and thought older sisters must be pure heaven. She even wished she could be more confident and better liked at school, and sometimes made clumsy efforts at being valier she could have kicked herself for afterwards. But this feeling wasn't abstract or theoretical. It was all too real. Anya found herself wanting to be Val Mal in every way, without really considering how much of herself she was suppressing. At home, her behavior began to alter in subtle ways. Behind the sour looks, each awful day she had a tingling sense of being under a benign influence she couldn't really escape. Before long, she was faking smiles and pretending to be nice. It was a seductive, sweet and sour thing that, for all her pig-headedness, Anya hoped to flourish at. None of this could have come about had Val not made the first approaches, getting Anya involved with others, sticking up for her at school, and above all, withstanding Anya's extremities of mood. Sometimes Val could even lighten Anya's disposition simply by asking questions and then listening to what she had to say. Other times, although it was against her better judgment, Val would cheerfully go along with Anya to the gloomy places Anya said she knew paths through. In this way, she got to know the part of Anya that couldn't help being destructive, the deep-down Anya that would see a beanstalk and have to fell it. Val came to spend the night a second time that spring. After they'd changed out of their school things, Anya called to her mother from the front door. They were going out for a walk. Anya didn't bother waiting for a response. She felt annoyed and impatient and had to get away. They went to the village, walking towards the belfry. Val didn't know that was where they were going. On the way, they talked idly about their maths teacher, who never seemed to change out of his clothes. He'd been wearing the same brown suit all month. They giggled about this, imagining their math teacher going to bed in his suit and showering in it when he got up in the mornings. Outside the pub, Anya pulled some change out of her pocket and said, 
Do you want to buy some fags? Val shook her head. If I reach 18 without smoking, my dad says he'll pay for me to go anywhere I want for a holiday. Where would you go? To India. What's so good about India? I heard it's different. Anya held the money out. Just don't tell him. Val bit her lip, considering it. You look older than me, Anya insisted. Anyway, they know me in there. Just get a pack of ten and some matches. I really need a smoke. What's the matter, Val asked, taking the money. I'll tell you when you come out. But Anya didn't have to tell her anything. When Val came away from the pub short of breath, she was excited. They hurried down the road, into the woods. Val ran ahead as she spoke about the crowd of men drinking beer, and how their eyes snapped onto her as she came through the door, four or five of them, she claimed, taking her in with their eyes. It had taken all the nerve she'd had not to turn and run. She'd made it to the bar and stood there, putting on an ear-to-ear -ear smile for them, as well as the lady serving, who had too much lipstick on. The story seemed comical to both of them, but thrilling as well, and in her best prim voice, Vala dared to ask, Do you think I might have a pack of cigarettes, please? They ploughed through the woods, up towards the reservoir, getting far enough away from the world of people to light up in private. Val took a puff, but got more out of buying the things than she would ever get out of smoking them. She coughed and dipped her head so that her hair shrouded her face as she handed the cigarette back. I've tried it before, she said as they walked on. I can't stand it. They laughed, still coasting on Val's heightened mood, until they came to the water's edge and perched themselves on a granite boulder covered in wet moss. It was getting darker and the moss appeared to glow, most of the trees around were heavily entwined with ivy, and whenever they listened, the trees seemed to rustle. Val went on talking, while Anya observed gusts rushing this way and that across the reservoir, curling the water into tiny, spitting waves. She drew deeply on the cigarette until the end flashed, nodding and smiling at the right moments as Val repeated the part of her cigarette-buying story she liked the best, the part where she stood at the bar and smiled for everyone. Anya grinned instinctively, not really listening now, more aware of the reservoir and the wind. Whenever she listened carefully, she was sure she could hear a gurgling whisper. For no apparent reason, she interrupted what Val was saying. What did the men look like? Her friend shrugged. Sheep farmers, I don't know. All of them? No, different types. You wouldn't go weak at the knees if you saw them. She laughed then. They were old. Anya got up from the boulder. She wasn't in the conversation anymore, but she wasn't out of it. She was taking it somewhere else. Val could tell and stopped talking. Anya's face had gone rigid. There's someone watching, she said. Where? He's the kind who follows you round. Come on, Anya. I think he's bad news. Who? Listen. Val had started to pick at the moss clinging to the boulder. She was tearing away clumps of it now, working her fingers between the soft roots. It sounded like a horse chewing hay, she thought. She could hear the sound Anya was making and the leaves rustling about them, but nothing else. Anya gave a start. There, did you hear? She tossed her cigarette towards the shoreline. What? He's coming. Stop it, Anya. Looking past Val over her shoulder into the trees, Anya began to back away. 
Belle felt compelled to get to her feet. She looked where Annie was looking. You're having me on. Her voice had risen. There was enough shadow and confused shaping around them to make anything imaginable come true. Annie screamed as loud as she dared and shook her head. She screamed so loud she scared herself. She ran away, jumping over a fallen tree, catching her shoulder on a branch, charging at all the fear she could raise in her mind. She left Val struggling after her, panic-stricken and crying.